Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 will be the psalm we are picking up in this morning as we continue to move through the book of Psalms. And of course, over the last couple of weeks, we have seen the mighty victories of Christ that were foretold long ago in the book of Psalms about His kingship, His reign, His defeat of all of His enemies. And then we come to this psalm this morning, which gives us a reminder that those victories of Christ would not come apart from sufferings and afflictions, but would rather come through them. That in the same way that David in his own life suffered many afflictions and at times thought that the power of death would win. And yet, the Lord was faithful to keep His promises to him. So also would David's son, who would be the heir to the throne, before he took his seat upon the throne, would go through the pangs of death and would ultimately be delivered from them. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 22, We're going to divide it into two parts. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 18. And we're going to focus specifically on the sufferings of Christ. And then next week, Lord willing, when we gather again, we will look at the end of the psalm and look at his victories. So Psalm 22, we will begin by reading this together, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 18. We read here, beginning in verse 1, David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and indeed speaking prophetically, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. And not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. But you are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. 
Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Let's go again to the Lord. Father, long ago through your servant and king and prophet David, you spoke about the sufferings of Christ. You described the rejection by men that he would face, the mockery, the death that he would endure. And in Your grace, Lord, You did this ultimately to pay the penalty of our sins. The judgment that we deserved fell upon Christ and the sufferings for all eternity that were due to us from Your just righteous wrath were poured out upon Him. And He cried out in great affliction as He was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, it is a great mystery that the prophets longed to see, longed to understand. And You have made it known how You reconcile sinners to Yourself while upholding Your justice and righteousness at the same time. I pray, Lord, that as we see this morning the sufferings of Christ, that we would see in them the depravity of our own sin, the depths of its evil, and in that light also the great heights of Your grace that has been given to those who are in Christ. We ask that You would be with us and speak to us this morning from Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that um, one of the things that makes any song worth singing in the worship of God is that it rightly captures and communicates the truths of the Word of God. Many people can no doubt have their emotions stirred by enchanting tunes uh, 
that you hear in songs. And of course, that's not always bad. One of the purposes of music is to evoke certain emotions. I think what's most important is that if the emotions are ever stirred, they are stirred while being instructed by the truths that are being sung. This is one of the reasons why I love the song that we just sang, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. There is a line in the song that instructs us well in understanding the magnitude of the evil of our sin. And conversely, the depths of the sorrows of Christ in bearing their penalty so that we can have life. One of the lines says this in the hymn, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, and here its guilt may estimate. There is always a deceitful tendency in the human heart to consider our sins in the light of others, in the light of the sins of everyone else out there. It's a comparative game that we play, and it always leads, always to some form of self-righteousness and legalism. We can always find someone who is worse than we are, or at least worse than we perceive ourselves to be. The person who has lustful eyes can say to themselves as a means of comforting their own troubled conscience, well, at least I haven't acted on it. At least I haven't committed adultery. At least I haven't fornicated like these people I know. The gossips can say to themselves, well, you know, you know those wicked politicians that everybody's always talking about? How corrupt. How, how, how great of liars and deceitful are they. We even read a moment ago from the Gospel of Matthew about the robbers who were crucified with Christ, reviling Him. These are men who had just been justly convicted of committing crimes that under Roman law were deserving of death. They're crucified criminals next to Christ, and yet, even while on the cross, they are trying to find something to revile in someone else. Now certainly in their case, their fault-finding was baseless. But the point is the same. The nature of the pride of the human heart, a pride that always mirrors that of the devil himself, is that it's always seeking someone to accuse. So that in the accusation of others, it can justify itself. It can exalt itself. 
And it can lessen the burden and experience and conviction of its own guilt. And when our hearts are engaged in this kind of self-justification, they will inevitably be blind to the true nature of our own sin. It will be blind to its depravity, which will then, as a consequence, blind us from the true nature of the grace of God in Christ and the Gospel. Because if we don't understand the nature of our sin and its evil and how worthy it is of eternal condemnation, we will never understand the heights of the grace of God in forgiving sinners in the Gospel. And what this hymn helps us to do is to look at our sin as it truly is. To see its evil for what it is. And we do that. We see it by looking at the cross of Christ and His sufferings. Again, it says, here, at the cross, at the spotless Son of God being hung on a tree, we may view the nature of sin rightly. And its guilt, here, we may estimate. We may recognize the worthiness it has of judgment. Christ is the only one of whom it may be said. He is without sin. He was guiltless. He was spotless, blameless, perfect in every way. And yet, that perfect, spotless Lamb of God endured a suffering and sorrow that no man has known before, nor will any man know again. Because in His sufferings, the eternal Son who had only ever known the perfect love of His Father and unbroken communion with Him for all eternity was forsaken as the wrath of God against Sin was emptied upon Him. He who knew no sin was made sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. So that in and through this exchange, this miraculous, gracious work of God, where Christ bears our sins and His righteousness is given to us so that by faith we bear His righteousness and become righteous in this miraculous, mysterious work of God, we have life and not the death we deserve. All our knowledge of Sin, all our knowledge of God, all our knowledge of Christ, knowledge of the gospel, 
even our knowledge of the end of all things may be seen here in and through the sufferings of Christ on Calvary. And here, in our psalm that we're in this morning, we have a psalm that prophetically speaks about all of those great sufferings. It is a psalm that tells the story of the cross long before Matthew or any other Gospel writer told the story. Which is why also, when Matthew especially recounts the details of Christ's sufferings on the cross, he purposely quotes and alludes to this psalm again and again to help us to understand that what was taking place at the cross was in fulfillment of the words of David some 1,000 years prior. Now, we have seen before that David wrote the Psalms as a prophet describing things that were true not only in his own life to a degree, but most especially things that were true and fulfilled in the life of his offspring, Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to this morning rehash the reasons why we should understand the Psalms this way, but I do want to emphasize that we see the prophetic voice of David shining through most clearly in this psalm as he details the death of Christ long before it ever happened. And so this morning, I want us to see what David saw only now on the other side of the cross. As David is looking to the future towards what is to come, we are now observing and seeing the same things on the other side of the cross. And I want us to look at the sufferings of Christ, so that, as the hymn says, we may view our own sin rightly and understand the grace of the Gospel rightly. And then at the end, we'll conclude with some points of application. So again, like I said earlier, this morning I want to focus especially on the sufferings of Christ and then again, Lord willing, we will look at the victories of Christ in the remainder of the psalm next week. Now, these sufferings that we see in the psalm, they're in no particular order, but one of the things we see about Christ's sufferings is that they were social in nature. They were social in nature. Christ knew and He felt and He endured what it was like to have people, to have men against you, mocking you, ridiculing you, slandering you. He knew and understood what it meant, what it felt like to be unjustly persecuted, not only physically, but also emotionally, mentally. Verses 6-7, to seven, for example, describes this torturous experience. Christ says that He is scorned by mankind and despised by the people. 
and that all who see him mock him. They open their mouths at him with malicious words. They shake their heads at him. And then in verse 8, that verse tells us about the kind of mocking that came from their mouths. The people were saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. For He delights in Him. It is the fact that Christ did the will of His Father. Entrusted Himself to the will of the Father. Said what the Father wanted Him to say. Did what the Father wanted Him to do. It is the fact that He does all of these things in fulfillment of the will of God that becomes the very source of ridicule against Him by wicked men. It was the will of the Father that Christ should reveal the nature and the character of God in His own person as the Son of God. And yet, because Christ revealed Himself as the Son of God, according to the will of His Father, men rejected and despised Him. When Christ was crucified on the cross, hanging there in agony, Matthew's Gospel tells us that people were walking by Him and taunting Him because of all of the claims He had made. Those true claims He had said of Himself and demonstrated to be true in His own life. We read in Matthew chapter 27, for example, verses 42 and 43, that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, people who should have been most familiar and acquainted with the Scriptures. People who should have known the very words of Psalm 22 so as not to repeat them and fulfill them in the death of the King. These very people were saying to Christ, He saved others. He can't save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. And then notice, He trusts in God. He trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. They took His words. They took His claims. They took the truths that He had revealed about God and about Himself. They covered them in the mud of scoffing and hurled them back at Him while He was suffering on the cross. The psalm, moreover, speaks of the strong bulls of Bashan surrounding Him, which refers to these well-fed and fattened bulls. It's a, it's a kind of metaphor for those who were prominent and prosperous and of a high status. Again, you can think of people like the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, who always occupied the best seats in formal gatherings and were greatly influential among the people. It was the kind of people whom others listened to. Whom others are influenced by. These were the people who were leading the charge in ridiculing Him. 
And we know, of course, by our own experience, right, that it's, it's one thing if someone who's a drunk or who's a quack that no one listens to begins to ridicule us. That, that's one thing. Nobody pays attention to that. Who cares what so-and-so that no one listens to says about me? But it's an entirely different experience if some well-known leader is to malign us or is to slander us. If it was a boss, if it was a mayor, if it was a governor, if it was a president, if it was someone with high standing, some high social clout and status that reviled us, whether we personally respect that person or not, it's going to have a much greater impact on us. Unless we think that Christ Himself was just altogether immune from the emotional impact of being ostracized, the psalm makes it clear that His humanity was very real. That He felt the things we feel. And He felt the weight of the mocking by these strong bulls and dogs. Verse 6 again says, but I am a worm and not a man. And this not only describes how the people treat Christ in His suffering, but also how He feels as He's being scorned by all men. Even further down, we can see in verse 14, this internal turmoil that He has being expressed even further. He says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. His heart is fading, melting away. These are not, friends, these are not the words of a stoic, of an unfeeling man. These are the words of a true man who is deeply grieved by the hatred that is being spewed out wickedly against Him. John Calvin rightly said that the perfect purity of Christ's nature did not extinguish His human affections. He was a man who felt sorrow deep down in his heart and in a truer and purer way than any of us have ever felt it before. And he felt the pain that comes with being rejected by men. So we see first that Christ's sufferings were social in nature. But of course, we also see in the psalm that they were physical. He has physical sufferings. Before we even read the account of the crucifixion in the Gospels, we can see in this psalm that Christ was physically assaulted. Verse 16 again describes Him being surrounded by people. There's a company of evildoers that is here referred to as dogs. And you can think of the image here, right? This is like a 
a wild pack of dogs. These, these aren't, you know, your, your cute little lap puppies, right? These are wild dogs surrounding him. And what do they want to do? They want to destroy him. They're interested in eating him like prey. And probably not even interested in, in filling their own stomachs, but they just love the bloodshed. They love the hunt. Right? Sometimes you have wild dogs who are like that. They get loose and they're just running around and they're killing everything in sight. These are the kinds of people that is surrounding Christ here. And what do they do to Him? Verse 16, they pierced His hands and feet. A statement which may have originally described the inability of David to do anything to save himself from his enemies. As when we say, for example, my hands are tied. But a statement nevertheless that finds its fullest meaning in the crucifixion when Christ was very literally crucified on a Roman cross, having His hands and feet pierced through with those nails. And as if the pain of the cross wasn't enough, the psalm also describes the fact that Christ would have the dignity of His body further assaulted as He would be stripped of His clothes and would be hung naked in utter shame. Verse 18 says that they would divide His garments among them and cast lots for His clothing. And of course, Matthew in his Gospel tells us in chapter 27, verse 28, that before Christ was crucified, the Roman soldiers who mocked Him stripped Him of His clothes. And in verse 35, when they crucified Him, they divided His garments by casting lots among themselves. They wanted His garments as a kind of memorabilia. This was a, a trophy that they could bring home after they're finished with their Roman duty. They could hang it up and people could ask them, what is this from? Oh, this, this is when we killed the King of the Jews. A man who's no king. We know he's no king because we killed him by our hands. Caesar is king. This was their trophy, you see. And so we see as well that the sufferings of Christ would be and were very physical in nature. He has known the pain of the body being tormented and the agony that follows when there is no more strength and you feel as if you can no longer breathe. And He has known the shame of being stripped naked for all to see as He suffers as an unjustly crucified criminal on a Roman cross. But worse than the social sufferings, and worse than the physical sufferings, we find that Christ was most closely acquainted with divine suffering. With the suffering that comes from the hand of God. The very first words of this psalm shows us 
that Christ interpreted and understood all of His physical, external, internal sufferings as ultimately coming from God. That even the evildoers who were surrounding Him were only present by the providential ordering of things by God's sovereign hand. Verse 1 of this psalm is quoted by Christ as one of His last statements that He speaks before He dies on the cross. My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Or as Matthew records, Jesus' words in His native Aramaic language, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. And these here are not words that Jesus uttered as a kind of just theological statement describing the relationship between the persons of the triune God. He's not quoting these words as a statement about the nature of God and making the point that there was some separation that took place between the Father and the Son at the cross. God cannot be divided in Himself. The Father and the Son cannot be divided. So if anyone ever takes this verse, as it's often the case with heretical cults, what they love to do is take a verse like this and say, look, what happened is that there's a division that takes place between the Father and the Son. That's not what Christ is speaking about here. The statement is referring to the experience of the Son having for the first time ever the wrath of God upon Him. And in that experience, as He's bearing the sin of the world, being made sin, He's feeling as if He's been utterly forsaken. As if He's all alone. Isaiah 53, for example, says of Christ on the cross that it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. And therefore, as He gave Himself up to be a sacrifice for sins, and as the judgment of God was poured out upon Him, there was no one to save Him in that moment. He was not about to take Himself down from the cross. And the Father was not about to remove the Son from the cross. There was no one who would deliver Him in this moment of suffering. The only deliverance that there would be would have to come through the suffering of the cross. Not apart from it. And so at the cross, Christ felt Himself alone as He drank every drop of the cup of the wrath that we deserved to drink. And it would not be until every last drop was poured out by the Father and every last drop drunk by the Son that His sacrificial work would come to an end. 
He had to die so that we might live. And die he did. The psalm describes his death in verse 15 where he says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. You lay me, he says. It was by the scheming of the Jews and the hands of the Romans that Christ was crucified. And they were all responsible and guilty for their wickedness in that plotting and in those actions. But none of that ever took place apart from the sovereign hand of God. The death of Christ was never at any point an accident in history or a mistake in the plans of God. It was according to God's will and according even to the will of the Son. He lays His life down for the sheep. And Peter himself made this very point on the day of Pentecost when he was preaching in Jerusalem. And he says to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Those lawless men only had designs to kill an innocent man they despised. That's what was in their heart. That's what the scheming was all about. They despised this man and wanted nothing more. Their wills were set on his destruction and death. But God, in His own infinite wisdom, intended that through the death of the Son, sinners like you and me who are justly condemned would be forgiven through His sacrifice while His justice would be upheld. The men who drove the nails into His hands are guilty. And God, who orders all things, is righteous. As through that single act, He is reconciling the world to Himself while evil men think that they're accomplishing their own evil ends. God can and does even use the most heinous acts committed by men to accomplish His good purposes and will for His people. It is a glorious mystery, friends, how this all takes place but glorious it is nonetheless. And what it tells each one of us is that no matter what afflictions may come your way, no matter what cross is given to you to bear, there is not a single thing that will happen to you that does not accomplish God's good and perfect purposes for you. Even great evil 
brings about great good and righteousness for His people. Christ truly on that day endured the wrath of God, the weight of the just condemnation of God against sin truly fell upon Him and He felt Himself utterly forsaken. But again, His sufferings would not be and were not without purpose. It is through these very sufferings that His people are reconciled to God. And through these very sufferings that He would receive us and receive His people as His eternal inheritance and possession. Therefore, we need to remember that even though the cries of agony sounded forth from the mouth of Christ, at no point did He ever lose trust in God. We must remember that Hebrews Chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that Jesus is the one for the joy that was set before Him. He is the one who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, meaning that He had in His heart what would follow in the darkness of His death on the cross. And He had this in His heart Because the very psalm that describes his sufferings most clearly, long before they ever occurred, this psalm we're in today, Psalm 22, is also a psalm in which the Messiah is remembering in the midst of his sufferings the faithfulness of God. The Messiah is continuing to entrust himself into the hands of God. In verses 3-5, to five, for example, we find that the psalmist is remembering God's care, <coughs> excuse me, care and acts of deliverance for the fathers, for faithful Israelites who had long preceded Him. We read there that in you, he says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. And in verses 9-10, to the psalmist remembers how God has cared for him even from his earliest moments when he was a helpless infant who required the providential care of God through the nurture of a mother. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. So then even in the worst sufferings, where it feels as if God is nowhere to be found, Christ Himself never stops entrusting Himself to the will of the Father. He is the supreme example of what obedience unto death looks like, even when death itself appears to have the upper hand. Which leads me this morning to some of the application points that I want to make for you today. One of them is this. That like Christ, we also must believe the promises of God even when everything around us seems to be against them. Seems to be mitigating against their fulfillment. 
It's one thing to say that we believe in the Lord, we trust in His Word, we love Him when everything is going well. It's altogether different when testing and affliction comes. And yet, I want you to consider the great examples of faith that we have throughout the Word. You can think all the way back to the book of Genesis and the example of Abraham, who is our father in the faith. He's given a promise that he's going to have an offspring. His wife is barren. She can't have children. And yet, that's the promise. That's what he has to believe. Your barren wife whose womb is clothed, closed, she will have children. And he has to believe that. And he does. Or you can think later, once his promised offspring was born, Isaac, he grows and then the Lord commands Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. How does that make sense? He's the promised one. He's the offspring. If he dies, especially at my hands, your promises fail. And what does Hebrews tell us? That Abraham believed that promise so much that he had reasoned that God would even be able to raise Isaac from the dead. He can obey this command that he does not understand and seems to make no sense in light of the promises of God. And he obeys them because he reasons primarily from the foundation of the promises of God and not from the foundation of what he sees with his naked eyes. That's a faith that is given to us as an example. You could think as well about David. The fact that he was promised to have a throne that would endure forever. That he would have rest from his enemies. And yet, later in his life, what happens? His own son, Absalom, turns and plots against him and he's on the run. How do those promises get fulfilled if he's nowhere near the throne. And yet, what does David do? Even in the midst of the affliction, he continues entrusting himself to the steadfast love of the Lord. God will be faithful to His Word, to His covenant promises. Examples could be multiplied, but the point is that the call to faith and trust in the Lord is not a call to trust Him only insofar as the fulfillment of His promises seems abundantly clear to you. But it is a call to trust even when those promises are covered in dark clouds. When later in the psalm, we read that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Can we have a confident hope in the fulfillment of this promise even when everything around us appears to be getting more and more pagan by the minute? 
That's the experience of many a Christian. We are seeing darkness getting a hold. We are seeing paganism being celebrated. And many have fallen into this hopeless pessimism that nothing will ever change. But we are not told, friends, to believe the promises based on what the naked eye sees. We're told to believe them on the basis of the fact that God has said it. And when he said it, it will come to be. All the nations of the earth will worship the Lord. He will fulfill his word. Christ shows us, teaches us, that we must look beyond whatever affliction or trial is right in front of us and find our joy in the sure foundation that because God has spoken, whatever twists and turns may be along the way, He will fulfill His Word. Now, another point that I think is worth making is that there is also no experience of feeling abandoned by God that Christ Himself has not experienced. And therefore, there is no one better to go to than Christ our priest when we are experiencing those same kinds of things. Sometimes it can certainly be the case that our experience is one in which we feel like we've been forsaken. Our experience can mirror that of Job. Everything's going wrong. Health is gone. Job is gone. Reputation's gone. Whatever the case may be. Everything seems to be disappearing before you. And you can feel as if you're being assaulted by God Himself. Who do you turn to when that happens? Do you grow bitter? Do you grow angry? How could God do this? Isn't He supposed to just bless me abundantly? Isn't that what we're told by the prosperity preachers? Right? You come to Christ and everything will go well with you. Good health, good car, good family. Everything will be nice. Isn't that what we're told? But that's not happening. And it's not happening because that's not what we're promised. Indeed, we're promised in and through the Word and through the Gospel that if we follow Christ, there will be many afflictions. And sometimes it will indeed feel as if, like Christ, we are being utterly forsaken. But we're not alone in that experience, you see. We have one who is presented to us, who is indeed our great high priest, who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he's endured far more than we ever could. He's known our sufferings. And so in the midst of feeling abandoned, who do we go to? We go to Christ. We go to Him who has endured on our behalf And we are promised that He will never abandon us. 
And then lastly, I think it's worth stating there is no one also who understands the evil of our sin more than Christ. Because there is no one else who has descended from the infinite heights of purity to the hellish depths of being made sin. He knows how destructive, dark, and damnable our sins are. There is no one who knows the evil of the human heart more intimately and deeply than Christ Himself. And yet, knowing their great evil, what does He do? Does He cast us away? Does He say, these sins are too great. These sins cannot be atoned for. This is way too much for the grace of God to handle. No, he says nothing of that sort. What does he do? He gives up his own life for us. Before he ever went to the cross, the Son of God knew exactly who he was dying for. And he knew exactly every sin that they would ever commit or even think of committing or not even have a thought of committing. Unintentional sins we're oblivious to. He knows every single one of them. And yet he still comes. He comes into the world to give his life as a ransom for sinners and then he bids those same sinners to come. You come to Him and He washes you completely of the depths of the heinousness of the human heart. There is not a single sin that could ever be committed that is worse than the grace of God can ever handle. His grace, He has promised, covers all of our sins abundantly. And so his call from the moment he has entered into the world until this very day to everyone who is here is to come. You turn from your sins, you come to him, he washes you clean, and he will make you new. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you endured a great affliction on the cross when you felt yourself utterly forsaken and all alone, being rejected by men, being mocked and scorned, having the pain of the cross within your body and having, worst of all, the righteous judgment of God falling upon you. And yet your very own word tells us the reason why this happened. 
because our sins are great and they deserve the wrath of God against them. We all here deserve to be wiped away in a flood as in the days of Noah. And yet, the grace of God far outweighs our sins. And you came to save not the righteous, but sinners like us. And so, Lord, we are grateful for your grace. And we ask that as we heed your gospel, we would all come to you day after day to be cleansed and washed anew so that we might stand confidently in the hope of being heirs of eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.